0: Good morning, Redeemer Church. My uh, name is T.J. Smith. If we haven't met before, I work with and serve at the Golf Theological Seminary, uh, where we love to teach the Bible, where we love to think the Bible, speak the Bible, discuss uh, what it means to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And occasionally, we give quizzes, pop quizzes. So you want to have a quiz with me? All right, here's a, there's a question behind me, right? And the question is, what is our only hope in life and death? So, I hear Jesus. There's, this is actually a quiz question that I didn't make up. It's from a catechism. A catechism is a, a very old way of, of teaching people, instructing people about Christian faith. They're simple questions, simple answers. And this is the very first question from a catechism about 460 years ago. What is our only hope or comfort in life and death? Now, if we have tweens here, if we have any tweens, they may actually know the answer because we've been studying this, or they study this in the tweens group um, every week for for a couple years. So, what what is our only hope in life and death? That we belong, that we are not our own, but we belong, body and soul, to God and our Savior Christ I heard Jesus. There you go. That's right. The, the catechism answers, we are not our own. We belong to God, body and soul. Well, this morning we're going to be talking about a, a sobering subject, the subject of death and the judgment. And so, pray with me even as we begin to look at this passage. Father in heaven, we come to you in and through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And right now, we need your help. Help us to, to see in these verses to see in your word what is our only hope in life and death. For we desire, Lord, to hear from you and to behold Christ and to be confirmed in our faith as we follow him with all of our heart and with all of our soul, with all of our strength. And I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, a few weeks ago, Pastor Chris Lejeune preached from Second Timothy chapter 3. And then a week later, he preached from 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. And when I was given the opportunity from the elders to come and preach this morning, I said, well, just give me the rest of the chapter, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4. Now, this is called expository preaching, where you take verse by verse or passage by passage or chapter by chapter, book by book, Genesis until Revelation, we hear God speak to us. In fact, this morning, as we, take in the, as we dive into this passage, we're gonna to get to hear a number of, of truths, perhaps that you haven't heard about or talked about in a while. Now, next week, Pastor Dave Furman will preach from Romans chapter eight. Why? Well, because he's been preaching through the book of Romans, and he's already covered Romans one, two, three, four, five, six. And so next week is Romans chapter eight. That's right, he's gonna preach the whole book because this book, this Bible is our life. We love it, we read it, we study it, memorize it, sing it, chant it, speak it, counsel it one to another, for it gives us strength and hope in time of need. Now, in this passage, in in 2 Timothy chapter 4, we actually read some of the the most sober or sad words, perhaps, in, in the New Testament. It's a very emotional passage because the Apostle Paul is about to die. This is kind of like his final will and testament. Paul, if you recall, had been a zealot, a fanatic from his youth. He had actually, for a time, hated Christians. He tortured them. He wanted to shipwreck their face until the day that he met the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And when he met the Lord Jesus Christ, he turned to and began to follow Jesus Christ as his Savior. And then Paul, the apostle, for over 30 years, faithfully preached and taught and and evangelized, and shared, and counseled who the Lord Jesus Christ was, and he made many disciples from many different religious communities, and many different backgrounds, and everywhere he went, he planted churches, because he wanted people to know his Savior, Jesus. Well, I'll tell you, several times, several times, Paul was arrested himself, thrown into prison, and yet, As we read in this passage, unlike those other times when when he got out of prison, in this passage, 2 Timothy chapter 4, we read that he's probably not going to be released. He's probably not going to be freed to go and preach again. He's probably not going to plant any more churches because, as I read a minute ago, or as you heard read a minute ago, he writes, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. He likens or pictures his life as being... an offering poured out, completely, completely done. He says, The time of my departure, my death has come. And so, in this passage, we read something very strange. We see something very unique. We see a man who is not afraid to die, we see a man who has no regrets in life. He actually has hope in the very face of death. And that's what I want you to see today is is what kind of hope did Paul have in the face of death and what kind of hope can we have when we contemplate or think about our certain and unavoidable death. And I want you to see three things from this passage. They're kind of sprinkled throughout. We'll we'll move through the passage um, kind of backward and forward. I want you to see the grief of death and I want you to see the judgment of Jesus Christ that's coming. And I want you to see the godly affections of a dying man. Now, I already read verses 6 and 7 where we saw his departure has come. And this passage reminds us that death, death is real. Death is inevitable. It is, it is inescapable. Now, here in the United Arab Emirates, we might forget that. We might not see that because, actually, over the last few weeks, I've been thinking about this in, in the context of our country here. And did you know that the United Arab Emirates has one of the lowest death rates in the world? That is to say, fewer people die here in the UAE than almost anywhere else in the world. Fewer people die here in the UAE than almost anywhere else in the history of the world. Because most people... When they become ill, perhaps to the point of death, they fly home to a different country. Because most people, if they do happen to, 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 to fall ill or, or meet an accident and they die here, their, their family usually repatriates the body. In fact, I asked a number of you, some of my fellow members who've lived here a long time, tell me, how many funerals have you been to? One man has lived here 30 years. He said, TJ, I've only been to one funeral in 30 years. Another senior saint, a woman, told me, you know, in all my years, I've only been to a couple of funerals because mostly the body goes back and leaves the UAE. In fact, we don't talk about death very much, she told me. Well, you know, that may be the reality of Dubai where people don't think about death or see death or want to talk about death. That may be the reality of our world, of your home culture or my home culture, but that's not the biblical reality because we see in this passage and actually throughout Scripture, that Paul, the apostle, talks about death, that God actually commends or says it's wise to think about or carefully consider your mortality. In fact, in in, um, Moses, in in Psalm chapter 90, uh, commits almost an entire psalm to thinking about or talking about the limits of life and the brevity of life. And in Psalm chapter 90, he writes in verse 9, For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. (sighs) The years of our life are 70, or of reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Seventy years, if given, to strength, maybe 80 years, and yet you know the truth is that m- many of us, perhaps most of us, will not reach 70, for we all will pass away like a sigh. The book of Ecclesiastes is almost an extended meditation on death and the finality or the, the limits of, of life. On Ecclesiastes 8.8, 8, it says, no one has the power over the day of their own death. Hebrews nine twenty seven says it with crisp certitude. It is appointed for a human being to die once, and then comes judgment. Death, it's inescapable. Our world doesn't like to talk about it, though, right? We, we like to delay it, to, to be distracted by it, to diminish it. We, we don't want to look at it. We flinch from talking about death. And, and so maybe I just wonder this morning, beloved Christian, or if you're a visitor here today, have you considered this recently? You are going to die. I don't mean to be morbid or casual or impolite about it. This is our reality. is baked into what it means to be a human now under the sun. Death affects us all, every gray hair, every child, every man in the prime of your power, every woman in, in beauty, every single human being is going to everyone you love, everyone you know. And you know, death, death is our reality. It's, it's, it's grievous. It's sad. It is sober. Actually, I'm reminded Jesus Christ was sobered and saddened by death. Do you remember Lazarus When Lazarus was very, very sick, Lazarus' sisters, Miriam and Martha, sent a message to Jesus, and they said, Jesus, come, your friend, our brother, is dying. But Jesus didn't come, not not immediately. Four days later, he arrived uh, near near where Lazarus was, and Lazarus, indeed, had died. And in fact, Miriam and Martha, separately, at different times, they come to Jesus, and they say, they question him almost accusingly, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. Hearing their questions, seeing the people weeping, and and seeing the mourners there, and and knowing Lazarus had died. Jesus, seeing all the commotion, it says there in, in the Gospel of John, chapter 11, verse 35, it says that Jesus wept the Son of God, God incarnate, King of kings, Lord of lords, beholds or sees death, the smell of death, and he, and he weeps because death is a grief. It is heavy. It is sober. And for us, for all of us, it is inevitable. I wonder you considered the day of your death. For Jesus, Jesus Consider death. Death was not his friend. Actually, death is called his enemy. 1 Corinthians 15 26. It says that death is an enemy that Jesus will one day completely vanquish and conquer and destroy. Death is an enemy, right? Hebrews chapter 2 14 says Jesus came to destroy the one who has the power over death, that is the devil, and to free all of us who through bondage or fear of death were held under a kind of slavery. Jesus hates death. He comes to destroy it. He comes to free us from death. But we are not there yet. Death remains an enemy, cruel and and unrelenting and, and, and heartless. Friend, how do you live in the light of your unavoidable death? Do not think that it is only someone with gray hair who has to think about it. Every single one of us will be laid low. How do you think about that coming day? Do you try to dull that deathly dread with, with drink or sex or distracting entertainment? I know in a place like Dubai, perhaps you're, you're tempted to think, oh, you know, if I, if I f- diet a little bit more, if I take good medicine, if I take care of myself, I'll be able to delay it a, a few more days. What do you think about that moment? you pass into the threshold of eternity? You know, there is only one answer. There's only one solution to that that inevitable moment of death. And actually, Jesus talks about it in that context of John chapter 11. He said, declaring over the tomb where, where Lazarus had been laid, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me Yet, though he shall die, he shall live. And anyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Jesus there beholding and seeing and knowing about death and our mortality makes a stunning proclamation. He says, in him and through him, we who will all taste death can live forever. Yet, though we die, we shall live again in and through Jesus Christ. What he was talking about there is that through his victorious resurrection, through his destruction of death, if we belong to Jesus, we shall live again. Death is not the end. Death is not the final moment. And in fact, Paul knew about this. He knew about this because in 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul the apostle says, Jesus is the one who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. He says here in 2 Timothy chapter 4, My my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. This man is not afraid to die because he knows what his future is. And so, though death is a grief, it is not the end, because something comes after death. Paul's able to almost like see through death to what happens after death, and that gives him hope for this life. And that is to say, Paul knows about the judgment of the Lord Jesus Christ. After death, Jesus judges all peoples. And Christian, if you're a Christian, we don't fear that judgment. We don't fear that judgment because if we belong to Jesus Christ, we will experience His righteousness, and we, we have forgiveness of sins and life with God, and so on that day of judgment, we fear nothing at all. And yet, I want to back up just a little bit, because in this passage, 2, uh, 2 Timothy, Paul the apostle is in prison. He's already been in court once. He's going to go back to court. He has a human judge before whom he's standing, probably the emperor Nero, And so there's a lot of court language. And actually, look back at verse 16. Verse 16, Paul says, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me, may it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed that all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom." You know, it is, at this first defense, it's kind of like an arraignment and a, and a complicated trial. It'd be like the first time you stand before the judge. And it seems that when Paul was there and he first stood before the emperor Nero, that he was alone, that his brothers and sisters in faith, other Christians, had perhaps hidden themselves. Now, he doesn't hold this against them right he he says may it not be held against him he actually praised that and and you you may it may be a little confusing why they might be there why, why they weren't there but it's actually not maybe perplexing if you consider the judge before whom paul was going to stand trial it was an emperor named nero nero was insane monstrously violent he was an unjust judge and and sometimes just on a whim he would have people killed before even hearing the case. Well, Paul talks about in his first trial, that first arraignment, there's no one there. He was alone. And the Lord strengthened him. The Lord stood by him, though no one else was there physically around him when he was judged. He was rescued from the perennial lion's mouth because Jesus was there with him in that court case. Now, when Paul Asks Timothy to come. We heard it a couple times in this passage. He says, Come, Timothy, bring Mark, come and help me because I'm all alone. He doesn't want to be lonely anymore. And yet, in these last moments of his life, in these last days or months, Paul isn't afraid of Nero. In this passage, you get no sense that he fears that human judge or that arraignment. He has no fear of being condemned. He doesn't fear death, even. And so, how is it possible that a guy like Paul? in prison awaiting likely a a a execution how can he not be afraid i tell you this passage we see a few hints or a few elements of why paul isn't afraid and i already read verse eight look back there henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the lord the righteous judge will award me paul knows who his true judge is who the only, the only judge that actually matters, Paul knows about him. He calls him the righteous judge, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Paul isn't afraid of what Nero might say to him or about him. He fears or thinks about the judge that comes after death. And he, and he remembers that the Lord Jesus Christ promised that anyone who trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ will be declared righteous. They will be justified. And so Paul knows that on that day, after he has died, and he stands before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ, that Jesus will reward him with righteousness, with holiness, that Jesus will accept Paul. And so Paul has no fear of anything in this life because he knows that he belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. We see something else here. When he, when he speaks about his colleagues, his brothers and sisters in faith and that they had hidden, that they weren't there, they had deserted him, it seems, at that arraignment, Paul doesn't hold it against them. He entrusts them to the Lord Jesus Christ, too. Though, though they weren't there, he doesn't hold it against them. He's not angry or, or bitter or vengeful against his brothers and sisters. He trusts the Lord Jesus with them as well because he knows that the Lord Jesus is his true judge. We also see in this passage that he trusts whatever's going to happen. In verse 18, he talks about, you know, the, the, I was saved from the lion's mouth. And he says, and the Lord will bring me into his heavenly kingdom. Paul knows that the only way he's going to enter into the heavenly kingdom is through death. He knows that the next trial or maybe the one after that, he will be condemned. He will be tried and, and then executed. But that's not. That's not the end. He knows that after that death, he will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and he will be rewarded with the righteousness of Jesus. Friend, do you know who this righteous judge is? Do you know what this righteous judge is like? He is holy. He is righteous. He is, cannot be bribed or coerced or frightened. He's never distracted. He's never too busy. A few years ago, I sat in a courtroom, very, very full courtroom of people pleading their case before a judge, and a very poor woman walked in. She walked up to the podium where the, where the judge was sitting, and she began to beg for for her case and the judge looked down at this very poor woman and said get her out of here i don't want to smell her he so disregarded her he was partial to some but not to others that is not what this righteous judge is like that we read about in second timothy chapter 4 the god who judges paul and you and me does not see any difference in our passport or in our color or in our nationality or in our language and our ethnicity. He judges everyone rightly. He sees everything and knows everything, and this judge will do right. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse four says, this rock, his work is perfect. All his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and justice, just and upright he is psalm 37 verse 28 says the lord loves justice loves justice beloved this judge sees every injustice that has been done to you every way you've been mistreated any kind of slander that's been spoken against you any wrong that you've experienced this righteous judge sees your life and your experience he knows how you've been treated and mistreated but this is a but right right in the middle of all this justice God also knows what injustices you've committed he knows what words you've spoken what things you've looked at the thoughts and the intents of the heart God knows them all and he judges every human being according to a righteous standard are you ready to meet this judge for he comes to judge the world 2nd Timi- or 2nd Corinthians chapter 5 verse 10 says all of us must stand before the judgment throne of Jesus Christ and he will judge us in white hot holiness for the glory of his name. Do not think this morning that because you're seated in a room full of Christians or maybe because you have a Christian name or because you have some Christian association, that 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 name or that, that being here, that that will somehow help you in that moment. For I tell you, Jesus Christ himself said, many many will come to me on that day of judgment and say, Lord, did we not do amazing things in your name? And the Lord Jesus will say to them, Depart from me. I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me. Matthew chapter 25, the Lord Jesus himself describes what his day of judgment will be like. In Matthew chapter 25, he says, um, let me get there. He, he describes what that final day of judgment is like. On verse 31, he says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, And all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, the sheep, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. If you look in verse 41, then he will say to those on his left, the goats, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Verse 46, Jesus says, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Are you ready? Are you ready to meet this judge on that day? if you have not turned to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, if you don't follow Him, this, that day of judgment, it waits for you. And it is coming. As surely as the sun is hot in Dubai most of the year, as, as surely as the moon rises every night, this judgment, this day comes. Are you ready? Now, there's very good news, right? Because the Lord Jesus Christ, even in these same moments, welcomes every single person to Him. He welcomes and says, Come to me, and I will give you rest. Turn to me, call out to me, ask me for salvation. And Jesus Christ says, I give it freely. When the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead, He says, Anyone who lives and believes in me, yet though he shall die, yet he shall live again. He shall live eternally with God. And so, call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. It's the great promise that Christ gives all of us. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you know Him and love Him, well, I've got very good news because this judgment day that comes after death need not fear you. You may not fear this at all. It doesn't apply to you, this, this judgment, this wrath, because Jesus Christ has satisfied the wrath of God. What awaits for you is the same thing that Paul speaks about in chapter 4, verse 8. In fact, he talks about it. He says, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. Do you see that? If you love the Lord Jesus Christ, if you belong to Him, then on that day of judgment, you will receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so you have nothing to fear on that day and everything to gain and to rejoice in if you belong to the Lord Jesus. Now, because because Jesus is our judge, All right, there's some implications here, right? Because Jesus Christ is our judge on that day, you can trust him. You can trust him with every injustice. You can trust him with with every time you've been mistreated or misunderstood or maligned or, or spoken about wrongly. You can give that to the judgment of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, we see something like that here in this passage. Look down at verse 14. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him. According to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, Paul says, for he strongly opposed our message. Here we have a guy, Alexander, who did great harm to Paul. He opposed Paul, he opposed the message of the gospel. He even was a threat to, to the church. And so that's why Paul is writing Timothy, and he says, watch out for Alexander. But did you notice Paul isn't angry or bitter against Alexander, he doesn't desire vengeance against Alexander the coppersmith, he warns, and then he entrusts to the judgment of Jesus Christ what will happen to Alexander the coppersmith. Now, our desire, of course, for a man like Alexander is that he would repent, that he would turn, even like Paul the apostle did very early on in his life or earlier in his life. But as he had Alexander, this context is an enemy of the gospel. And Paul the apostle, rather than desiring vengeance and, and viciousness against Alexander, he says, Lord Jesus Christ, you are my righteous judge. I trust you with what Alexander has done. And so, brother, sister, If you can get justice, if you can pursue good laws and good governance here in Dubai or or whatever problem that you're having, if you can work through the legal system, do so. Christians have the freedom to do so, to fight against injustice. And yet, until that moment of justice comes, do not seek vengeance. Do not turn inwardly bitter, but entrust to the righteous judge, the Lord Jesus Christ, the evils that you have experienced, and trust, for He sees you, and He knows you, and He loves you, and He protects you. Paul, the apostle, shows us in 2 Timothy four that death is near, near to him, and probably near to us than any of us would like to to think about. He knows that the coming judgment is real and is coming, but He doesn't just give up, right? He doesn't just give up. We see kind of in a scattering of details in chapter four that Paul actually longed for a number of different things. He loved a number of things even while he was waiting for death. And we get to see kind of a picture of the godly affections or desires of a man who's about to die. We can see what do Christians love when they're facing death? Maybe you're not thinking about death. That's okay. What do you love? Do you love the same things that Paul loves that we see here? We see that Paul isn't frantic. He's not fatalistic. He's not all gloom and doom and despair, even while he's in prison. He's actually faith-filled. He has hope. He's clear-headed and calm. And we get to see a number, in a number of these details of chapter 4 from kind of like verse 9 onward, the things that he loved, the things that animated his heart even while he was imprisoned in Rome and awaiting trial. And so let's think about what do Christians love or value, whether they're living or dying? Well, first, I want you to see that Christians love the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know if you saw that there at the very end of verse 8. He said, the righteous judge will award to me on that day a crown of righteousness, but not only to me, but to all who've loved His appearing? Do you love the return of Jesus Christ? Do you desire that He would come back? Do you, do you hope or long that the Lord Jesus will come and that trumpet sound and we will be with Him forever because that is what Christians have loved for 2,000 years and longed for and expected and anticipated. Christians love the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. I see a second thing in this passage. Even as I read through all those names, do you see all those names? Sometimes I like to think in 2 Timothy 4 that Paul is giving us like a list of baby names. And so you know, if you ever think you're gonna name a baby, you know, Priscilla, Onesiphorus, Eubulus. Yeah, I don't know, I've met to me Eubuluses in my life. But these are real people right, real people in real places, time, space, history, they were followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. They knew him, and they loved him, and all of them, 1,970 or 80 years ago, all of them died bearing witness or testimony to the faithfulness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you notice these names? Paul knew them. He loved them. Actually, let's look, let's look at them real quick. At the end of verse 10, we see Creskins has gone to Galatia Titus to Dalmatia Luke is with me he says Paul tells Timothy get Mark and bring him with you he is useful to me for ministry we read about Tychicus and Carpus or down in verse 19 Priscilla and Aquila that power couple this woman and this man who were so influential in so many churches we read about the household of Onesiphorus and Erastus and Trophimus who had been ill and, and Eubulus and Pudens and Linus and Claudia. In fact, all the brothers and sisters, Paul is greeting and in welcoming. Paul wants us to see, even as he's dying and that he's limited, that he loves the people of God. And he names them because he knows them, and he knows them because he loves them. I just wonder, do you love the people of God? Are they in your heart? Oh, how we need each other. I mean, that's in some respects, that's the whole reason why Paul wrote this section. He's talking to Timothy. and says, Timothy, come to me. I'm alone. I don't want to be alone. We need each other. You need other Christians, and they need you. I just wonder, if, if, if you're not involved in a community group, if you're not involved in a small group, if you're not involved in a Bible study or a prayer group, what prevents you from opening up your life to the other Christians that God has put in your midst. For you will never be more happy and more healthy than when other Christians know you and love you and when you know and love other Christians. Paul here we see even at the the tail end of his life in the months before he dies loves the people of God. What do Christians love? We see there in verse 13. Verse 13 we see when you come, Paul says, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus, and also the Books, the par- especially the parchments. Now, I'm a professor at GTS, right? We're supposed to love books and study, but that's not just me, right? That's Paul here. He's in prison. He's fairly limited. In what can he do? And what he can do. And of the two things he asks Timothy to bring, he says, "Bring me a cloak. Winter is coming. It's cold. And bring me books." He wants to read and study and think. And I tell you, Paul loved the Scriptures. He loved this book that I'm preaching from right now. He loves the book that you have, maybe in electronic form, on your cell phone. He loves the Word of God. And I just wonder, do you love the Word of God? Do you sing it and chant it and memorize it and speak it? Do you think the thoughts after God using the words that He's given us in His Word? Because that's what Paul loved. And that's what Christians have loved for 2,000 years. We love the Word of God. There's another element here about what Christians love, but it's it's negative. It's kind of in in the negative zone. Look at verse 10. I kind of skimmed over this a minute ago. Verse 10, we read about Demas. Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Demas, desiring the things of the world, desiring the, the institutions and the hopes and the loves of the world, abandoned Paul. Now, Demas wasn't always like this, right? We actually read about Demas in the book of Colossians and the book of Philemon, and he was, in, earlier, a, a co-worker of Paul, maybe even a trusted teacher of the Word along with Paul. But now, as we, as we meet Demas, He's abandoned the faith. He's deserted, Paul. Why? Because he loves the world. He loves the world and the things of the world, and so the love of the Father is not in him. The boastful pride of life and and the the desires of the eyes have, have consumed him. Oh, Redeemer Church, you know what this is like because you've met people like Demas. You know people who used to love the things of the Lord who used to come and enjoy the reading of Scripture and the singing of praises to Jesus, but now, over the course of several weeks or months or years, they've grown cold. Oh, Redeemer Church, the world is alluring and deceptive and it is passing away with all of its desires and wants to destroy us in our faith and so we look not to the world but we look to the Lord Jesus Christ we want to see the Lord Jesus Christ and fix our eyes upon him so that the things of this world might grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and of his face and they will grow strangely dim the more that you behold him in his word and the more that you see the lord jesus christ even in fellowship with other christians the passing pleasures of this world will pass away and yet beware beware of the allure of the world because demas in love with the world abandoned paul paul's eyes though were fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ. His, his eyes were fixed on the things that God loves, on God's Word and on, and on God's people. He, he longed for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ even while he was there imprisoned in Rome. There's one other thing I see here in this passage that Paul loved, the fact that all Christians love. Look back at verse 17. Verse 17, Paul writes, the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that why why so that? So that he might be physically strong, that he might get his freedom again, that he might have access to funds or to good medical care. No, no, no. Why, why does the Lord stand by and strengthen Paul in verse 17? Do you see it? He says, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles hear it. Here at the very end of Paul's life, He still has one love, one ambition, one goal, one message, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Christians love the gospel. We love this message that God draws us to himself in and through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. We love that anyone who trusts in him is going to be saved and receive that reward of righteousness on the judgment that comes after death. We love this good news and we speak it to others. Christian, do you want a life without regret? Do you want a death without fear? Then love the things that God loves. Love the word of God, love the people of God. And when you consider the grief of death, Remember, it's a passing grief. It's momentary. It doesn't seem like that. I know it doesn't seem like that. But with Paul, we want to see beyond death, through death, to the judgment of Jesus Christ when He will gift to us, give to us His own righteousness and welcome welcome us into His eternal kingdom where we will live with Him forever. Oh, beloved Christian, if you belong to Jesus... The grief of death will be but a moment. And if you belong to Jesus, the joy of that judgment that you have with Jesus Christ will be wonderful when He gives you His life. If you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, then we live life now, knowing Him and loving Him and loving His people and loving the Word because we know that we do not belong to ourselves, but we belong to God, both body and soul, forever. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we come to you through the finished work of Jesus Christ, who even right now lives and intercedes for us. Though he died, he rose from the dead to give life to us. And Father, I know that even right now, some of us are thinking about our own life and our own death. We recognize that we are limited that maybe tomorrow or this week or this month we'll hear news of someone that we love who has entered into eternity. Heavenly Father, we want to have the same eyes that Paul had. For he was able to look at death and not be afraid. For he he knew in whom he had believed and he had entrusted himself to the righteous judge, to you, our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, Jesus Christ, come. Come soon. Come quickly. I pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.